You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Astounding Stories 8, August 1930, by Various. Earth the Marauder, part two of a three-part novel by Arthur J. Burks. Chapter 13, The Lunar Cubes. For a long time, Sarka and Jaska remained still, like sentinels, listening to the strange discord which seemed to emanate from behind the hill and whose base they crouched. Look, said Sarka at last. There against the sky, beyond and between those two waving tentacles. Note that column of light, scarcely lighter than the light which surrounds it everywhere. It looks like a massive column just lighter than everything around it, yet so little lighter than you have to watch closely to see it at all. Jaska stared for all of a minute, before she thought back her answer. I see it, she said. Note now whether it goes, as it reaches outward into space. Jaska followed the mighty height of the thing, outward and outward, and then gasped. Sarka! she said. Its end touches the earth in the very heart of that strange glow we spoke about. Exactly, and people of earth know nothing about it, because it's invisible to them. It's only from outside that the glow it makes against the earth is visible. If we can't divert its direction or render it useless in any way, the moon will no longer be thrust away by its force. A pause of indecision, then Sarka thought again. Let us go, Jaska, keep behind me, right on my heels. Slowly, fighting against something that seemed determined to pull or hurl them outward from the surface of the moon with each forward movement they made, they essayed the side of the hill, pausing at the end of what seemed like hours in a sort of hollow just large enough to mask their bodies, and stared over its edge into one of the craters of the moon. Out of the depths of that crater came the discordant sounds, which now were almost deafening, and out of that crater too came the almost invisibly bluish column whose outer tip touched the earth. Right before them, so close that they all but rested in its shadow, was one of those monster aircars, its tentacles moving to and fro, as though wafted into motion by some vagrant breeze. But since neither Sarka nor Jaska could feel the breeze, Sarka knew that it was lie which caused the waving motion of those tentacles of terror. Note, he said to Jaska, that there is a tiny trapdoor in the bottom of the aircar, and that the thing rests on a half-dozen of those tentacles. I see, came Jaska's reply. Jaska went on. Know the gleaming thing on the ground, right below the air car. I wonder what it is. They studied the thing there, which seemed to be a huge jewel of some sort that glittered balefully in the eerie light of the moon. It was perhaps twice the size of an average man's torso, and was almost exactly cubical in shape. As Sarka studied the thing, he sensed that feeling flowed out of feet that the cube, whatever it was, was alive. He tore his glance away from it, and realized that he accomplished the feat with a distinct effort of will, though the cube had willed to hold his gaze, knew he was there. 
his eyes peering around the inner slope of the crater, which dipped over some hundreds of feet down and plunged downward to some unknown depth, noted a broad, flat stone off to his right, and around the rim of the crater he counted a full hundred of the aircars, all with their tentacles waving as if they belonged to sentient creatures. Below each one, as he studied them and strained his eyes to make out details, he caught the baleful gleam of other cubes like the first he had seen. The aircars, it seemed, were either sentinels at the lip of the crater, or were the dwelling places of sentinels, and the cubes were those sentinels. It seemed absurd, but it came to Sarka in a flash that that was the answer and his eyes came back to the first cube, because it was nearer and more easy to study. I will not be swayed by the will of the thing, Sarka told himself, nor will I allow it to analyze me. Jaska, do you do likewise? Beside him Jaska shivered. He turned to look at her. Her face was coldly white, and her eyes were big with terror and fascination as she stared at that first cube, resting so balefully there under the first air-car. He shook her, and she seemed to bring her eyes to his with a terrific, will-straining effort. Look at me, he told her telepathically. Keep your eyes on me, for to look at the cube spells danger. But his own eyes went back to the thing, and he studied it closely. A cold chill raced through his body as he noted that its gleam was becoming dull, fading slowly out. It had gleamed brightly at first, and now was losing its sheen, fading away to invisibility. He thought he should be able, regardless of gleam or color, to see its outline. But its outline, too, seemed to be becoming faint, indistinct. Then, in a trice, it was gone and a feeling of uneasiness, more compelling than he had ever known before, coursed through the soul of Sarka. Where had the cube gone? What was it? What was its purpose? He tore his eyes away from the spot where he had last seen it, and stared away to the shadow beneath the second nearest air car, where he had glimpsed another of the cubes. The cube there, too, was fading out. Sarka! Sarka, look! came to his brain the thoughts of Jaska. Sarka turned and stared at her, and a feeling of fear for which he couldn't account at all took fast hold of him. The eyes of Jaska, wide and staring as they had been when he commanded her to look away from the cube under the air car, were staring at that flat table-like rock off to his right. There, almost in the center of the rock, a gleaming something was taking shape, just a dull spot in the center of the yellow glow, then the beginning of the outline of a cube. Then, all at once, the cube itself gleaming and baleful. Sarka gasped in terror. He had seen the cube vanish, its glow disappear, and now here it was, almost close enough to touch, on a rock beside him, gleaming and baleful as before. That it was the same cube he had seen under the first air car, he somehow knew without being told. That it was a sentient thing he also knew, for now there was no mistaking the fact that, but for the presence in the little hollow of Jask and Sarka, the cube wouldn't have moved. Swift as light, Sarka's right hand darted to his belt, where his ray director should be nestled against his needle feet. And with his first movement, 
The cube's brilliance vanished instantly, the cube disappeared, and appeared again right before the face of Sarka, so close he could touch it. Yet he didn't turn the ray director against it, nor did he extend his hand to touch the thing, because he was afraid to do so. Even as the cube appeared before his eyes, thrice baleful and menacing in its close proximity, his eyes darted back to that broad, flat rock, where the second gleaming cube now appeared. "'Great God, Jaska!' he said mentally. "'What does it mean?' "'These,' she answered bravely back, "'are moon soldiers, and unless we manage not to appear furtive, we're undone.' Still Sarka made no move while other gleaming cubes appeared on the flat rock. Five other cubes appeared beside the first, at the rim of the hollow which held the forms of Jaska and Sarka. The cubes were closing on them, oddly like a squad of earthlings in the olden times, advancing by rushes against an entrenched enemy. The buzzing sound which they had first heard now seemed accentuated, but instead of being outside of the listeners, seemed inside them, hammering against their very brains. Messages were being sent to them, who passed back and forth between and among the cube men about them, and they hadn't the slightest idea how to make answer, nor whether an answer was expected of them or what the cube men thought about them. Since there was nothing else to do, they lay there, hands clasped, as children in the dark clasp hands, and waited for what might transpire. Suddenly, the discord from the inside of the crater ceased, and all was still, while it came to Sarko that the cube men who stood before him were in grim communication with something invisible to Sarka and Jaska, somebody, perhaps deep in the bowels of the moon, over inside the crater. They knew those two, that the cube soldiers were reporting their presence and asking instructions, that the moon had gone silent to listen, and that within a few moments their fate will be decided. In his hand Sarka held his ray director, with which he knew he could blast one or all of the cubes into nothingness. But still he held his hand, made no move. Something, however, had to be done, for the discord was starting again, growing in volume. It made Sarka think, oddly enough, of a deaf-mute fighting for speech. Then came the first intelligible sound, a burst from the depths of the crater of sardonic laughter. Dalis, said Sarka and moved, while Sarka moved, Jaska held fast to his arm, casting her fear to the winds. Furious because of the laughter of Dalis, Sarka thrust his ray director back into his belt and stood upright. Bending over, he seized the first of the gleaming cubes and hurled it over the edge of the crater, so it started plummeting down. But even before it fell out of sight within the crater, its gleam had dulled until it was almost impossible to see the thing. Racing as though racing against time, Sarka caught up cube after cube and hurled them all after the first. Out of the crater there came no sound of heavy objects striking. Though Sarka felt there should have, for the cubes were almost as heavy as a man. Then his hair almost stood on end under his helmet, for under that first air car, where he had first seen it, the initial cube was again gleaming into life. 
The thing had dissolved while being hurled over the rim, and reformed in its proper place, stationed as silent sentinel under the aircar. These cubes, then, were indeed sentinels, sentinels impossible to injure. Though no force had been used against Sarka and Jaska, Sarka had the feeling that they were powerless, and that here on the edge of the crater of the moon awful forces were being mustered against them mustered slowly sluggishly yet surely as though the mentality which mastered them knew them helpless and that there was no need to hurry as for jaska she merely clung to sarka and waited trusting him no matter what might transpire on a blind chance sarka brought out his ray director again turned its muzzle toward that invisibly blue column pressed with his fingers moving the director back and forth Instantly the blue column seemed to break short off, while the broken upper portion started racing outward toward the earth. Sarka watched it, and noted that the yellowish glow on the earth, even as he watched, was fading out, disappearing. If the ray will smash the blue column, Jaska, he said, it will also destroy its source. Come, we will go look for it and holding her hand tightly, he rose to his feet and strode boldly down the inner slope of the vast crater. Chapter 14 The Crater Gnomes It seemed to Sarka, as he moved down the inner slope of the crater, that the cubes were somehow making sport of him, laughing at him, though no hint of laughter or anything resembling laughter emanated from them. But shutting his lips grimly, holding fast to Jaska's hand, he proceeded on reached the lower portion of the inner slope, where it dropped off into a seeming black abyss, and dropped, keeping to a safe speed because of the fact that both he and Jaska were tired from movement in the air, though their manner of aerial transportation could scarcely be called flying. The anti-gravitational ovoids simply rendered ineffectual the law of the gravity. Down they dropped, endlessly it seemed, while all about them growing gradually a bluish glow began to make itself manifest sarka turned and looked at the face of jaska and noted that it all her being was glowing with this strange radiance he smiled at her and she smiled back looking down now to what seemed still a vast depth they could see figures moving tiny almost infinitesimal about a great circular cone out of the depths of which came that strange bluish column whose outer tip touched the earth. Some inner sense warned Sarka not to touch that column, or to permit Jaska to do so. They dropped down beside it, while Sarka, for no reason that he could assign, once more took his ray director in his free hand and held it in readiness. It seemed so tiny and futile, so foolish for two people, one of them women, to go into the very heart of an alien world against an unknown enemy armed with such a tiny weapon. Two people against unguessed myriads, whose very nature was an enigma even to Sarka. Closer now appeared the bottom of the crater, whose floor seemed to be covered with something that looked like blue sand or rock. From this bluish substance the glow which bathed the two earthlings seemed to emanate. The funnel of the crater had now given away to the immensities of space, in all directions, and the cold of outside was being replaced by a warmth which promised soon to be even uncomfortable. 
Then, without a jar, the two landed at the bottom of the crater, side by side, close enough almost to the great cone to touch it. Out of the cone came that bluish column, to shoot up through the funnel down which the two had lightly dropped, and the motion of the whatever it was was accompanied by a muted moaning sound, like that of a distant waterfall. They paused there, in amazement, taking stock of their surroundings. Huge tunnels whose roofs were lost to invisibility in the bluish haze, whose extremities could only be guessed at, reached off in all directions. As far as the two could tell, they were the only living souls within the crater, though both knew better. Sarka had the feeling, and he knew Jaska shared it with him, that innumerable eyes were studying them, innumerable intellects were cataloging them, and somehow he sensed the presence, somewhere near, of the traitor dailies. Then the discordant sound again, breaking so swiftly that it fell upon the eardrums of Sarka and Jaska like the crack of doom. Out of the many tunnels, from all directions, came hordes of beings which would have made the nightmares of Paracelsus, first of the scientists of Earth, pale to insignificance. Paracelsus had written and illustrated his nightmares, had hinted of strange acts of flesh-crafting, as the grafting of legs on the head of man, he had spoken and written about ghastly operations from which men came forth as part man, part spiders, part man, part scorpions, dogs, cats, crocodiles. Sarka thought, as his mind went back to those ancient books of his people, in which still remained vestiges of the theories of Paracelsus, that somehow, in his dreams, Paracelsus must have visited the craters of the moon. These people, if they could be called people, they had heads like the heads of earthlings, broad, domed of brow, lacking eyelashes or lids, so that their eyes were perpetually staring. They possessed no bodies at all, and their legs, thin and attenuated to the size of the wrists of average man, seemed to support the massive heads with difficulty. From all directions they came, looking like spiders such as Sarka I had described to Sarka when Sarka had been a mere boy. They came on the floor, out of the tunnels, they dropped from the walls of the tunnels and down from the invisible roofs, landing on the floor as lightly as feathers, and all converged on Jaska and Sarka. They seemed to have no fear at all, but only a vast curiosity. Closer and closer they came. Jaska's grip tightened on the hand of Sarka, for one of the creatures with a spiderish leap had jumped upon her, fastening its legs in her tight-fitting costume, where he hung, his face within an inch or two of hers. His lidless eyes, unblinking, stared deeply into hers. Others jumped up beside the first, and still others clambered over Sarka, until both Sarka and Jaska were covered by them like beetles attacked by ants. But these strange gnome-like creatures, who didn't fear these strangers, apparently meant them no harm. Then, after a thorough scrutiny, began the strangest talking Sarka had ever heard. 
The crater gnomes seemed to communicate by making strange clucking sounds with their tongues, sounds which were unmusical and discordant, in which the gnomes who stood back from them, because already the two were covered until no more could cling to Jaska or Sarka, joined in the speech, mounted in the cavern to a vast crescendo of sound. Sarka knew then that this was the sound which had come out to them while they crouched at the crater rim. These were people of the moon, but if these were moon men, what or who were those gleaming cubes? Stand perfectly still, Sarka mentally admonished Jaska. They apparently mean us no harm. He hadn't spoken loud, hadn't allowed his thought to reach any but Jaska. Yet instantly the discordant clucking ceased, and the gnomes were quiet, as though they politely listened to someone who had interrupted them, yet whose interruption they resented or were curious about. Wondering how the creature would regard his action, Sarka reached forth and plucked away the first gnome which had jumped upon Jaska and placed him gently on the ground. The thing merely stared at Sarka with his lidless eyes, as though wondering at Sarka's meaning. Then his lips, which were triangular, rather than straight as those of earthlings, began again that strange clucking. Immediately the gnomes which clung to Jaska and Sarka dropped away, and scuttled into the midst of the mirrors that stood and watched. They didn't understand the speech of these earthlings, but they were unusually clever in comprehending the meaning of gestures. Hold fast to me, Jaska, thought Sarka toward her, and wondered anew at the gnomes instantly ceased their clucking sounds, for I am going to try an experiment. Holding her hand still, he turned and strode straight toward the huge cone out of which rolled the bluish column. Instantly the gnomes broke into a frightful clucking of tongues, a sound that mounted to air drum-breaking intensity, and in a trice, climbing over one another to get into position, they moved in between Sarka and the cone. So eager were they to bar his further progress that they stood atop one another, until the depth of them was as tall as Sarka standing upright. Yet though they plainly said to Sarka, You must not approach the cone, they didn't seem to be angry with their visitors, but only curious. Sarka looked at Jaska, noted how wanly she smiled. Then he turned and headed for the nearest of the monster tunnels. Instantly he detected a surprising eagerness in the renewed clucking of tongues, while the gnomes raced ahead behind all about the two, capering like pet animals, showing the strangers the way into the tunnel. As they entered it, Sarka tried to discover whence came the bluish glow. The floor seemed to be of bluish sandstone, though its color, too, might have been caused by the glow. It was warm, too, so warm that perspiration was breaking out on the cheeks of Sarka. Whence came the glow? Apparently from the very walls of the tunnel, or its roof, but surely from somewhere, surely from some secret place, whence it was diffused all over. And Jaska said Sarka. The moon, according to my father's researches, is literally honeycombed with craters like this one. Again, as he thought, that strange, sudden cessation of the clacking of the gnomes. Whither were they leading them? It was plain to be seen that the gnomes were heading for some destination, almost herding Sarka and Jaska toward it. Capering creatures who behaved witlessly, 
yet we are far from witless. If Sarka weren't sadly mistaken, these were moon men, and women too, perhaps, since he couldn't tell the sex of them, and those gleaming cubes were their outer guards, perhaps slaves. If the cubes were really of metal, they had felt warm to Sarka's touch, then these moon men had gone further in science than earthlings, and they had imbued at least some metals or stones with intelligence sufficiently advanced for them to perform actions independently of their master's wills. Sarka, too, was remembering another thing, that he had touched one of these gnomes to remove it from Jaska, and had felt a distinct shock that was patently electrical. The bluish glow was increasing, becoming more soft and mellow, shading gradually into golden as they advanced, shading still as they proceeded until it was almost white, almost blinding, in its radiance. Then, of a sudden, the clacking of the gnomes ended, and the creatures ceased their capering, fell into something that might have been an ordered military formation, and with Jaska and Sarka in the midst of them, moved straight toward a broad expanse of the town wall, in the face of which appeared three long lines deeply cut in the shape of a triangle. The gnome who had first leaped upon Jaska advanced to the wall, paused with his face almost against the lower line of the triangle, and remained there, intently staring, while the other gnomes remained mute and unmoving. Stronger and stronger appeared the blinding light, Slowly the inner portions of the triangle began to give inward, like a door, and out of the opening came the blinding radiance. As the triangular door stood entirely open, Sarka and Jaska stood in thunderstruck silence, staring like people bereft of their senses. For there, standing in the opening, the now white radiance itself a mantle to cover her, was a woman, unclothed save for the radiance, who might have been of the earth, save that she was more beautiful than any woman of earth. Beside her the radiant beauty of Jaska paled, became wan and sickly. But Sarka noted immediately her eyes, whose depths bewildered, amazed him, for in them he could see no expression, no feeling, but only abysmal cruelty. That she was Sarka's master, and Jaska's master, and master of all these gnomes, became instantly apparent, for telepathically she addressed Sarka. I'm busy now. The moon people will hold you prisoners in the place of the blue light, until I am ready to give you to the cone. End of section 10